Welcome, everybody, to Politrex. Of course, this is our interview episode that is a companion to the collaboration that we had between our show here at Politrex and the Revolutionary Left Radio, which is a political philosophy podcast available at all fine podcast outlets everywhere. And, of course, we also have the interviews with Benjamin Shidungao and Josh Mufawit-Paul, both co-authors of Methods Devour Themselves, a book that has just come out that explores the connections between speculative sci-fi fantasy, uh, science fiction, and political philosophy. So this is a companion piece that is going to go with the actual conversation that Brett, Shashank, and I have, along with interspersed bits of this, uh, these two interviews that you're going to hear on this episode unedited and uh, just cutting out some of the ums and ahs that I tend to do from time to time. So with that, we hope you enjoy both interviews. First, we'll be starting with Benjamin, and then we will finish off with the interview between myself and Josh. So enjoy. Um, I'm Benjamin and I am a writer of science fiction and fantasy. I have lived in Thailand and Hong Kong, among other places. And uh, my, my most recent work is the uh, epic fantasy novella Winter Glass. Yeah, Winter Glass is, I haven't read it yet, but I've heard great things. And then this entire interview is about Methods Devour Themselves, um, a book you wrote with Jay Malfawad Paul, who we've interviewed before on the show. So I'm really excited to kind of, you know, bounce some of these questions off you. And I think we're going to edit it into a really interesting episode that sort of reflects the structure of the book. So let's just go ahead and get into the questions. How did this unique collaboration with JMP come to be? And what was your goal in doing it? So uh, he had been reading my fiction for a while and he approached me about this project and I jumped at, at the chance because usually you don't really, unless you are a very famous author or dead or both, you don't really get to engage with, you don't really get people doing uh, very critical engagement with your work and it was, it was a very original way to do it. My, my, my goal of doing it was to build a really unique work the nonfiction and fiction components interact with each other in a way that you should that you don't usually see see done so much because uh, usually literary criticism is very separate from the fiction. It's done very separately uh, rather than as a collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the goal was absolutely achieved. This is certainly a unique book and sort of reading it and going between the two fiction and nonfiction makes for an interesting sort of overall aesthetic and intellectual experience. So I'm really like excited about this structure of this book and I'm glad Zero Books uh, put it out. But let's go ahead and move on to, I know you write science fiction and fantasy. Um, I, I'm a big fan of science fiction and, and I tend to view science fiction, at least in part, as human beings wrestling with the future of the species and in that process of sort of projecting into the future, trying to anticipate and address worlds and problems that have not yet arisen. Sometimes those attempts go on to directly influence people who grow up to become scientists and engineers, shaping their imagination and directing their work. How do you think about science fiction in regards to both our psychology as individuals, as well as in regards to its cultural importance overall? So for me, I don't, I don't really, my science fiction is not half science fiction. So I don't, Thing in terms of influencing engineers or mathematicians, but I think we can do a lot by providing possibility 
by imagining liberational future beyond our current conditions, whether that's post-capitalism, post-racism, post-sexism. At the most basic, if these stories, these futures can be imagined, then it's also nearly impossible to take actions toward achieving them. So I like to think that it provides some groundwork for activism itself, for imagining new stories, new futures. Yeah, absolutely. The sort of expansion of the of the imagination is the task, I think, of of artists of various sorts. Um, so I think that's incredibly important. We know uh, JMP t- talks about capitalist realism in, in his parts of the book, and we've done an episode on that topic. And the basic idea is that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. And artists who tick up, take up the tasks of sort of expanding that political imagination, I think, is incredibly important in real-world political work. Um, what are the greatest challenges for science fiction or fantasy writers in articulating real-world material conditions through their stories? A lot of writers have this tendency to use metaphors, like elves and dwarves are racial minorities, X-Men stand in for pretty much everybody, and sometimes werewolf and vampires stand in for HIV-positive patients or gay people, which is not so great. Mm. Just look at Harry Potter, which has turned out pretty, which, which has not aged too well. I think I think a lot of these metaphors can be well-meaning, but they are not so great at actually articulating material conditions because they are too removed. They are trying too hard to not be so political. And beyond that, that is the issue of, okay, if you are imagining that future, do you want to remove components of the current real-world concerns? Are you going to keep in racism or poverty or war? But I think... Obviously, it all depends on what kind of story you are trying to tell. Mm. But it, but you do need to put a bit of thought into it. Whereas if you are just uh, writing realist fiction, you can just go by what is currently there or what is historical. Yeah, you've mentioned uh, a Harry Potter. And sort of the interesting thing about what J.K. Rowling tries to do is we'll we'll go back like post hoc right and look at her old work and then put in meaning for um, you know progressive social issues that weren't actually there in the original creation of the work itself. So as like society progresses and like trans issues comes to the fore, she'll go back and you know deem one of her past characters trans in a sort of post hoc way. Uh, how, that sort of reflects the criticism that that you're talking about there. How, how do you think about that sort of action? Do you think it's the the sort of that's well intentioned? but ultimately sort of harmful? So with, with Rowling in particular, I kind of have, I mean, it's hard to think of it as well-meaning because it's for, I mean, there is no textual evidence to support any of it. She literally just go, comes on Twitter and then goes off. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost random at this point. Like now Nagini is an Asian woman, which has a lot of unfortunate implications. It's, I would say that the way she goes about it is pretty terrible. I think if there is nowhere, nowhere for the text itself to support it, it's a really bad idea. And most writers should not try for it. 
Absolutely. So this new IPCC report came out recently about climate change, and it was pretty dire in its predictions, talking about you know the catastrophic consequences coming much earlier than uh, most of us had predicted in the past decade or two. So in the era of climate change and long-term c- catastrophe, and with people struggling, as we mentioned, to even imagine an alternative to capitalism, what do you think are the responsibilities of science fiction and fantasy creators, whether in literature or film, if, if any at all? Part of the current climate change uh, discussion, I think, is that before now, um, let's say like 10, 20 years ago, a lot of science fiction was very positive about technology. As a way forward, nothing, uh, no detriment, and there was not a lot of concern about climate change and all that. So I think that has done a lot to affect the way we view technology today, and we have spent a long time not really thinking about the environmental impact. That in, in in many ways, I think that was pretty irresponsible of uh, of older writers because they didn't really think about this. They are just thinking, oh, uh, we can go to space, or uh, we can we can come up with basically magical technology that will make all this go away. And our current approach to technology is flex a lot of that that kind of narrative. Do you think as things intensify and as climate change becomes more and more apparent in the everyday lives of people that um, that sort of reflections will happen in in science fiction going forward, Um, either pessimistically or optimistically? Do you think it'll become more of a thing as we sort of struggle with our our present and future conditions? Yes, I think now there is a lot more post-apocalyptic fiction for obvious reasons. And I think uh, fiction now more, more... a lot, a lot of writers put a lot more thought into this kind of thing, and there are some movements toward both ends. Some of them espouse a kind of completely pessimistic future, like post-apocalyptic games like Fallout. Mm. And the other end is thinking of a positive change and a future where we can reduce our environmental impact, have sustainable energy, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm always saying that everybody has different skill sets and everybody can apply those skill sets towards the struggle for a better world. And I, I really think that, you know, artists and, and writers have a, a sort of a responsibility, but also an opportunity here to sort of explore those things in new ways, especially if you're coming from a left wing perspective and you believe that collective action is the way towards liberation or the way to address some of these bigger issues, then weaving that into your artistic work, I think, is becoming more important now than perhaps ever before, given the sort of enormity of, of the of the challenge of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you just a, kind of a side question, but I think this is kind of interesting. Do you find it difficult with publishers in, in the West or centers of, of capitalism to get your ideas out and published? And, and what have, what have some of your experiences been with that? Yeah, uh, so one issue I have personally faced is that, okay, people think the names of my characters are difficult to pronounce or even unpronounceable, but there are just Thai names or Chinese names that are actually obviously quite normal in my part of the world. My friend Sylvia Moreno-Garcia has mentioned before that uh, editors have no trouble relating to Hannibal Lecter. They find Mexican teenage characters so hard to connect with because their names are weird or they live in uh, in Mexico and, and a lot of Western writers just find that so unrelatable. And that is pretty funny given that uh, re- a lot of readers and editors have no problems relating to a literal serial killer. <laughs> right. Uh, that, that, does, that does speak volumes. So there's that cultural difference as well. 
moving on a little bit, and I think we mentioned this a little earlier, but you know, this is something I'm kind of interested in as a as a fan of science fiction, like historically. Do you see your work representing a rupture from classic science fiction? And if so, what are your unique influences that that make that true? Yeah, I obviously I have read some classic science fiction. I have read Octavia Butler, Philip K. Dick, Frank Herbert. So, and I haven't read much else, but yes. And the obvious way that I differ from them is that my influences are more Asian. Anime has had a lot of cultural penetration in my part of the world, and that has influenced some of my writing somewhat, like Ghost in the Shell, Psychopath, more recently. Mm. And I've also watched adaptation of Chinese epic by Journey to the West or Investiture of the Gods, and that have a lot of those things have influenced me quite a lot in how I approach culture, even how I approach technology. Absolutely. And I think that certainly comes through in your work. Out of, out of the classic science fiction authors that you have read, do you have any personal, any personal favorites? I actually quite, quite like Philip Caddy. I have read a lot of his work, although to be, to be perfectly honest, it, it's been a while. Mm-hmm. I think um, I like The Man in the High Castle, okay? And obviously, Octavia Butler is very important. And um, Lily's Blood is probably my, my favorite of her work. Um, moving on to, to the book and, and your works in the book itself. Um, in the first two stories, We Are All Wasteland on the Inside and Krungthep is an onomatopoeia. We encounter an individual interacting with another, likely older individual, corrupted by the conditions of the world you've created, either the fantastic come to life or corruption from exposure to a corrupted past system. Though JMP has explained this and spoken about it, where do you see your impetus to write in these similar veins in your work? I will the narrative the narrative canvas as populated by corrupted people. So even though uh, in both stories, that is a younger person interacting with an older one. I don't really see the younger person as more innocent or less affected. In this particular case, they are both products of their history and they have just barely survived that history. And I suppose these two stories are pretty... Well, Westland is probably more pessimistic because it literally ends in the the protagonist wishing and imagining an apocalypse. Um, when when Judamat states that humanity does not function without a currency, is is that Judamat's cynicism, or, or is she alluding to a pervasive pressure that is too hard to resist once set in motion? How how did you sort of design that character's uh, relation to to that line and that approach? So yes, she is very pretty cynical, but also. I think it's kind of difficult to imagine a world where everything is perfect and and utopian. There will always be a negative pressure. So I I often write worlds where sexism, transphobia, and homophobia are pretty much gone. Mm. And these things are are not actually as unlikely as you think because in a lot of cultures before colonizers and Christianity show up, that is that was actually the case. It was it's actually realistic in that in that aspect. But I I can't imagine myself writing worlds where there is no conflict at all. It's very pretty much impossible to imagine that because humans we always have we always have conflict, whether it's political or military. Um, do do you personally view yourself like? Do you think of yourself as a pessimist or an optimist, or do you reject that dichotomy entirely? I am afraid I think of myself more of a pessimist. I mean, I have written stories with positive endings, but yeah, p- pretty pessimistic. <laughs> yeah, it's hard not to be these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Um, is your writing influenced by a political will to expand horizons and provide a voice to those quote unquote dreamers in the margins? Or is your inspiration to write from a more personal desire to tell stories where the characters represent personalities and concepts that you wish to express through experience? I don't think of myself as providing anyone with a voice because I believe everybody can speak for themselves perfectly fine. So I will write things as an act of ego more than of empathy, which I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will disagree, but mostly writers will write for ourselves first. So what I, I want to do is to represent what I want to see. So in this, in my case, it's focused on decolonizing, imagining a future without the current dominant narrative, without hegemony, and okay, a more positive future. That's why my claim to be a, I claim for being a person. <laughs> um, out of curiosity, when we're talking about science fiction and fantasy. I've got into those genres almost exclusively through film and my development and my interest in those genres. Um, You're obviously a writer of literature. How do you see the pros and cons of the different mediums of film versus literature when it comes to sort of expressing, uh, you know, science fiction or, or fantasy? I think if it's more, um, okay, the visual media obviously have a much bigger audience and, you have the clear advantage of convey, being able able to convey the atmosphere, the everything in um in more much more quickly. In that regard, I think um visual media have this obvious these obvious advantages, but it can lose out on uh, interiority of character. And sometimes I find that if you are uh, if a book is being adapted into a film, say, a lot of the author intention can be lost. But with the text, you can preserve what you want to say pretty much perfectly. It's much purer form of communication. Um, at the very end of the book, you have an afterword on authorial intentionality. I was wondering if you could sort of kind of summarize your argument there, because I, I think it's important for artists to sort of keep this this idea in mind that you articulate in that little afterword. So could you kind of summarize your argument in your afterword and, and say why it's important? Okay, a lot of people will disagree with it too, but I think if you don't have anything to say, it's pretty difficult to write a story that has meaning that is going to resonate with people. So having something to say is really important to me. And obviously you, it doesn't have to be super blunt, like what people think of a message fiction, but it does have to have a core of what you want to do, what you want to see. And that will inform everything in your writing, from the characters, theme, even the prose. How did you get into literature? Like uh, growing up, was it something that you were ch- as uh, fascinated with as a child, or was it something that you sort of cultivated as you grew into an adult? Like, what was some of your early experiences with literature that pushed you in the direction to become a writer? Uh, I, I, I suspect, like most writers, I read a lot as a child, and I think if if the uh, for me, it's the most intuitive way of absorbing information more than through visual or auditory media. So it was the natural progression for me to to write rather than to to make music or to get into filmmaking. And when did you become politically engaged? When did your political consciousness sort of blossom? That is actually kind of difficult. I think it's hard to put a finger on that. But I think uh, some of my some of my formative influence well, okay, uh, the original ghost in the show, it was what made me very curious about say, the interaction of body and technology 
the interaction of consciousness and memory. And eventually, when I when I was a bit more grown up, which because I watched this uh, the original movie when I was a very young child, so a lot of that went over my head. Mm. So when I was uh, older and started watching more of this and came back to it, I I started to understand the geopolitical aspect of this show. And because in the show is really political, it gets into the the how the Japanese regard uh, regard America and the political map of the world. So that was very influential for me. And then do you have, because like, I know um, JMP, who we've had on the show before, is, you know, self-identifies as a Marxist-Leninist Maoist. Um, do you have a political tendency that you adhere to? Or are you just sort of broadly on the left? How do you think about and identify yourself politically? I don't really identify myself as such, but I talk a lot about post-colonialism, decolonizing. But I don't, I don't think we have any kind of label for that. We don't call ourselves a colonialist. But I suppose I would call myself at least a post-colonialist. Okay, and so you, clearly you and JMP were influenced by Franz Fanon, who who makes appearances throughout this throughout this book. Yes. Is the isn't the title itself comes comes from a Fanon quote? Am I right about that? Yeah. Ah, awesome. Yeah. Um. All right. Well. Thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's been an honor to not only read this book, but to interview you and uh, the stuff we're going to try to do in the editing process of putting these two interviews together and sort of reflecting the structure of the book is something new for both Barry and I. And we're really excited to have both of you sort of help us out and collaborate on this project. Before I let you go, um, do you have any new projects in the works and where can listeners find your work online? My next, my next book will be Mirror Strike, which is the sequel to Win the Glass. That's coming out late next year. Uh, the rest of my work can be found online at beekian.wordpress.com. All right, and we will link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Benjamin, for coming on. It's it's been an honor to talk to you, and I look forward to I look forward to your creations in the future. Okay, thank you so much. Welcome, everyone, to our main topic. I am extremely excited to have for you all um, a fellow who is well-versed in the work of political philosophy. His name is Jay Mufawad Paul, and he is a adjunct professor at York University in the Canada sector. And he has written several books now that uh, yours truly has enjoyed quite a bit. The uh, Communist Necessity Continuity and Rupture, Austerity Apparatus, and the focus of our interview today, the book Methods Devour Themselves, a conversation which he wrote with Benjamin Serdan Q earlier this year. So first of all, welcome to Politrix, uh, Josh. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you. We're uh, we're looking at um, sort of the conversation that exists between uh, between science fiction, speculative fiction, and fantasy, and um, and political philosophy, and we definitely do that a lot on this podcast, though we take a bit of a Star Trek look at things. We don't expect you to be, um, you know, encyclopedic in, in anything in that respect. But what are some uh, what is some science fiction fantasy that you found yourself uh, looking into maybe as a younger person or currently? <laughs> what didn't I look into? I mean, I was, when I was like a kid, you know, a science fiction nerd in many ways before, um, I mean, because I'm almost 40. So when I first was getting into it, it was at libraries. There wasn't like an online, what they call the, you know, the, the genre fandom or community didn't really exist. So it was just me at a library and all my friends that were doing nerdy things like playing D and D. Um, but you know, like I think what really, you know, the first, the first science fiction fantasy was actually more fantasy novel that I read, um, by myself. It was an adult one was, you know, this, uh, this trilogy by by Michael Moorcock actually when I was in grade three, and <laughs> I think it might have actually 
uh, kind of determined the line of the kind of you know fantasy and science fiction, the speculative fiction that I liked because it was always more outside of that kind of Tolkien beaten beaten path, right? Um, and you know, from there, I just read like tons and tons of stuff. So I've I've always been interested in it, and and also I've always been interested in kind of the cutting edge or, or the 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 avant garde edge of science fiction and fantasy, um, both in you know reading and you know like well, I mean, in, in prose and comics and movies and TV shows, but definitely the literature aspect and how how a kind of literary sensibility has been brought into science fiction and fantasy. Uh, it's always been there. It's been brought in in different times, but recently it's been, you've seen a lot of push to, to, to push a kind of literary sensibility in it. And I've found that very interesting. So um, you mentioned sort of that idea of, um, you know, science fiction being um, sort of avant-garde and, and it kind of drives your, it drives sort of a philosophical approach. So you've sort of seen science fiction as a way to engage with different types of philosophies, I'm guessing from, from very young age. Uh, would I be right in saying that? Uh, I'm not sure. Like I look back and I'm like, is, is this what made me interested in philosophy in the way that, you know, in the way that uh, I'm interested in it now? Um, and it's it's difficult to know. I mean, it's like I you know I liked it, and then I I got interested in philosophy at you know a, a later age, and, and I actually think I was I was politically radicalized much later too. I, I think that you know maybe reading certain things in science fiction and fantasy might have laid a certain groundwork to to make like the kind that I read, right, the more progressive kind that I read, um, maybe laid a groundwork for political radicalization, but. I don't, I'm not sure. Like, I it's it's like they, they were separate interests, and my radicalization happened because of like people that I became in contact with, and that kind of transformed the way that I looked at like both what I was doing in university and my interests in literature as well. So, um, I do see you know science fiction and fantasy as being fruitful ground for radicalization, possibly, right? Um, but you know. It's. It can also be like a ground for like very like reactionary radicalization as well. I, I, yeah, I would I would agree with that. And you know we've we've talked a bit about toxic fandom and stuff on the show here, and also just about the the directions of certain types of um, of science fiction and perhaps its commercialization and everything like that. I want to start just from the introduction. You mentioned that a reader can take elements from a story and use them to think through ideas that may not have crossed the author's mind itself. And, you know, of course, when a science fiction or, or fantasy, you know, um, book or, or show comes out, you know, it's not necessarily what the author is going to necessarily put out there that we take from it. Um, I feel this is what I try to do I'm, uh, as a school teacher of literature, that, that, that people should be engaging with their science fiction and their fantasy SFF, I think is what we can hyphen the, that down to during these conversations. But do you see the two of you, Benjamin and yourself, conversing, quote unquote, as a better way of exploring philosophy through science fiction? Do you see this conversation as, you know, you've mentioned avant-garde, do you see this as something that we should be doing more so? Well, yeah, I'm, I mean, there's a number of things. Like, I think that uh, I would like to see more of it. Right? I'd like to see more of the kind of conversational thing that we did between kind of my form, which was you know writing political philosophy, and her form, which is speculative fiction. Um, and I, I'd like to see more of these kind of dialogues between forms happening. But I, I don't think it's an either or, right? It's uh, it's it's. I think it's something that is it provides opening for people that might not come to political philosophy otherwise. So 
people that like would really find they might think that political philosophy is really boring or, or, or there's a lot of terms that are used in political philosophy that especially you know I'm, i do a specific type of marxist philosophy and there's all these terms that might be alienating to people that um, don't have any background in that. And I try my best to be accessible, but after a while, that language is, just becomes I, – I exist in a certain kind of linguistical framework when I write about you know, my philosophy, right? So I felt that this kind of approach where um, I could you know, use her work analogically, but then also see how she used my work back and forth, uh, it, it was – I think it was a way to – hopefully introduce more people to these radical philosophical ideas if they find that reading literature is easier and also a way to introduce people that just like reading nonfiction uh, into literature, introduce them into literature as well. And I think the kind of, you know, connecting these two things together, because this is always happening, like literature uses philosophy. A lot of sci-fi, right, is filled with philosophical concepts and and philosophy uses like, like you know, an- analogies from literature to explain things. Um, but having that kind of back and forth dialogue where you put them in one one place, I think, I, I, I felt it was a really interesting project and I wanted to see where it, where it led and it led to something very unique in my opinion. And also it required a lot of discipline and really challenged me because I was always coming to each new piece that she would give me back from what I had given her um, with not knowing what she'd be giving me and then figuring out like, what is this going to give me for something to write? So it really, yeah, it really kind of pulls you into her world as much as you're giving her sort of groundwork to build her world as well, I guess, almost like in, in your responses, you almost kind of helped in the world building. Would I be right in saying that? Uh, that, that'd be a very generous way to put it. Um, and I guess you helped in the philosophy world building as well. I mean, there was some of the stuff that was like, I hadn't really, the second chapter, not the second chapter, I guess the third chapter, my second intervention was one that, you know, I hadn't really thought about, say, that topic, which was historical perspectives until, um, she wrote that piece and it made me think about that. So yeah, I guess maybe it just helped us both build our respective worlds. That's uh, that's where I'll wasteland on the inside, right? Uh, n- no, uh, we're all. So I'm, I'm I'm getting the order wrong. So it would it would have been one, two, three? I was the fourth. Yeah, fourth chapter. I'm just not thinking of in front of it me right now. So uh, yeah, print, print first up, the first yeah. chapter was wasteland on the. In- we're all wasteland on the inside. Then there was my initial response to that. But it's a th- it's the third one. The the Krungthep is an automatopoeia yeah. that I received that that was like push me to do something that I hadn't really considered before for my for the fourth chapter. That one I got hung up on too, so we'll be getting back to that soon, folks. But before we do that, um, a quick follow-up in that sense. So making this discussion and this conversation that you've done, this almost sort of brings up the idea that that using artifact philosophers, folks who have died or who aren't with us anymore or who, say, refuse to engage or something like that, you see that as as not as useful as engaging with people who are actually here, who can actually um, respond. I would wonder if you would be able to kind of elaborate on that point just for, and I'm going to, I have a bit of a Star Trek-y follow-up. Um, I wouldn't say not as useful. I think they have different uses, and I use analogies from people that are dead all the time in literature and art <laughs> that I think is useful for explaining things as a, as a rubric to explain ideas. I just felt, and I think this could just refer back to what I was saying in the last chapter, I felt, and I know B felt as well, that this this 
project would be something different. It would produce a, a different way of thinking about things, not better, but just kind of, I, I kind of said that at the end of the introduction, but like, what would, what would it be like if, you know, the author could respond back? So it wasn't just like artifact, as you said, what mm. would it be like? It's not suddenly saying one is better than the other. Um, it's just saying that this, this way of doing things might produce a different way of reading for readers. It definitely did. And it, it, it's, you know, why, why I think this is a, an interesting collaboration to make um, that, that you guys did here and, and to sort of get you on the, on the show to talk about, about the idea that we are, you know, doing ourselves a disservice if we're not always engaging and definitely entertainment is, is the number one reason to, to get into anything. It's got to be fun. But um, I also sort of noticed that you'd sort of mentioned that, you know, when you were getting into sci-fi and fantasy and speculative fiction, that it was kind of still on the fringes. Now it's very much in the mainstream. And you'd mentioned <laughs> um, um, Zizek's use of banal Hollywood movies to analogize his thoughts and insights. And here I have you on a podcast that looks directly at a larger sort of Hollywoodized science fiction franchise. Do you think... And from your understanding, do you think that there's hope in the message of Star Trek, or has it passed for the most part into the same kind of pith and vapi- like vapidity of other mainstream SF fare? Well, I should maybe go back a bit and think about my relationship with Star Trek. Right? Um, yeah, I'm not a I'm not a Trekkie, so I'm not going to have the encyclopedic knowledge as, as you mentioned earlier that a <laughs> podcast is going to have on that. I have a lot of friends who are Trekkies, right? And the stuff they know, it's like. They just they're just really into that. So, um, but I I did I did grow up with family and friends who were Star Trek fans, and like family too, like my dad. And you know I remember I remember when the Next Generation premiered. Like I remember very clearly the day of that premiere and watching it with my family in the living room, with my excited parents. Uh, so I get the appeal, right? Um, but I, I think it's I, I never was really a big fan of of Star Trek. Not like I have some disapproval or anything. It just it wasn't it never spoke to me as the kind of sci-fi that I was into. Like I was into kind of things at that point that were like wilder and stranger and that I didn't see being made into TV shows. Um, so it, it, it didn't speak to me in the same way it's spoken to a number of people. I know. I, I do know, like I have like a lot of friends, right. Who, who, and I'm sure that you do as well because your show is about this, is that the people that find a sense of socialist utopia in it. And so I respect that. Um, but I've always been kind of cautious of, of seeing something like Star Trek with that kind of allegorical reading that like it's this socialist future. Because, I mean, there are those episodes here and there. Like I know enough and I've seen enough of it that you don't see these episodes. Like the one, you know, the Next Generation episode where, where Picard speaks to those 20th century capitalists who were cryogenically frozen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was a great episode where he's telling them, you know, money, this, this thing that you, you know care about money doesn't mean anything so it, it there's those episodes but i it always felt like bound within this framework um that i felt was ultimately about a utopian capitalism so it it, it was like this i always maybe this is my wrong reading but it always just seems to me that this is this is a future where the invisible hand has ironed out all differences right and that you know there's there's no because there's no trace of class struggle really and you don't see this notion that all of it's all the technology somehow developed because of the blind forces of technology which is a productive forces um reading of society which is you know the revisionist way of looking at things mm-hmm. and there still seems to be some form of imperialism like the federation says well they, it, they just use the ideology of colonialism like exploring brave new worlds yeah. right and uh and it, i mean at best maybe it's some kind of fabian socialism is in that but it's yeah. it's 
where that kind of again the productive forces, um, and and that I feel that's a wrong way of understanding social development. And I've always also felt that I mean I know they're trying to change it now, and and you know with the new the new Star Trek, uh, the new TV. I'm not talking about the movies. I mean the new TV series yeah. uh, where they're trying to make it seem a little bit you know different than this. But uh, in the past, it's always felt like the feder the space of the Federation is like it's it feels like an Americanized space. It's like America extended out like, i mean it was made in america so the cultural right that cultural hegemony is, is very strongly there and and i feel that when it's tried to trouble that like in the movies it's it has actually been you know tend to like adopt more of the cynical um kind of more competitive individuals set against each other that kind of like hobbesian view is like kind of crept into it every time they've tried to make it not look so monocultural so I mean, so that's 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 my background <laughs> with all of this. I mean, I but I mean that doesn't mean that I know so many people have been radicalized by it. People can be radicalized. More power to them being radicalized. Um, but I think also there's for me because of sci-fi and the science fiction and fantasy, the speculative literature, the SFF, whatever you want to call it, that I'm interested in promoting that speaks to me is the kind that is you know outside of the, the, what is now considered kind of the popular fandom of the community or whatever, I, I find there's this danger in popular SFF fandom um, where all these fran- of the big franchises, because it seems like the worst sentiments and social privileges are like catered to and preserved in those settings. So, um, which is something I would have never seen. I never saw with my Trekkie friends as a kid because th- there wasn't those like online spaces, right? Maybe there were some bulletin board services people went to, but you know, a lot of my friends didn't have computers until later. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's crazy. Technology develops as well. Um, but you know, I don't. I don't know if that makes it as pithy and vapid as Gjek making analogies with Star Wars: The Phantom Menace, which is as pithy and vapid as you can get. But I mean, it does make it a bit more troubled, right? It's a troubled thing as well. So I mean, I think it's still space there, and people are still fine that it fuels their imagination. Um, but I, I'm, I'm interested in kind of like like these other types of science fiction fantasy and the history of those and the promotion of those those kinds of ways of seeing yeah i i fully i fully agree and support you know like uh obviously star trek was a, a major part of my radicalization in, in sort of trying to envision a world without the um you know and maybe it's almost kind of hegelian in that everyone has a chance to actualize and and we definitely see that kind of more imperialistic sense of what the federation is through starfleet but i always sort of wondered like what would a show about you know just some guy who like you know grew grapes or something what would his his or you know or you know a lady who worked in a mine or something what would their stories be and i almost wonder if sometimes it would be maybe kind of boring for us to look at because if they've solved you know as you've said very interestingly the invisible hand has ironed everything out like how how interesting would it be is there actually any class struggle is there anything that's um that's taking things forward or or you know showing that that you know when the revolution has happened you know it actually still continues and it still needs perfecting and changing as you know as time changes and stuff like that but um i almost wonder as well there's a big sort of kind of dystopian element to a lot of these sort of utopian futures and everything like that. And it, this does kind of get brought up later when you talk about Mark Fisher, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But I've noticed as well, there's uh, the way the Star Trek world gets created is basically World War Three happens, everybody almost dies, and then some guy in Montana manages to create a rocket that can 
get us, you know, through space faster with warp speed, and then Vulcans sort of arrive as a sky hook. Um, do you see a way to envision, say, you know, for you and me being communists, a future of storytelling that people would actually accept? Or do we need more of our kind of world laced into science fiction and fantasy to better like connect with it. Like you say, you like stuff on the fringes. Is there a certain amount of connection that we need to have, or do you see throwing maybe the ball pretty far into something that we might almost not be able to recognize as, as a better way of going? Well, I mean, to be clear, when I say things on the fridges, I should be things that are more marginalized or peripheral. I want them to be mainstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I don't want them to remain on the fridges because we're this kind of like small elite group that likes them. And I think we are seeing a lot of the stuff that was once from the margin moving into the center with, well, if you look at M.K. Jemison's victory at the Hugos, like she's the first woman to win, uh, well, first person historically, not just, I just say first person to win a Hugo for all three novels, like the best Hugo novel, like the best novel in the Hugo category uh, for all all three novels in a trilogy, right? Mm-hmm. And that's and she's a black woman. I just won that, and it's and it's this that kind of the, the, the people from say the global peripheries or sites of marginalization that have been producing science fiction and, and their voices, and they've also always brought a more literary sensibility. They um they seem to be like moving and getting more mainstream. And this has caused like a reactionary pushback with people like Fox day and all these other people trying to game the Hugos and decide to make this claim, about wanting to go back to the fun days of science fiction and fantasy, meaning like, no, no people of color, right? yes. <laughs> no people from any marginalized position. That's what they mean. So that's, I'm interested in that process and what's going on now. I figure you're going to talk about, um, so, I mean, I wanted to get that clear, and I just realized I went off down, <laughs> down a, a rabbit trail on that. So, to, to pull it back to your question about, like, utopia and dystopia, I, I think there's a, a place for both both of those, right, um, in in the way that we we tell stories. Like, I don't – I think they can be gritty. They can be not gritty. I, I, I wary of this kind of very simplistic social realism way of telling stories or, oh, it should all just be how, you know, everything is unified under socialism. I mean, that's what we want, but we're not there. So I think there's, like, literature and a lot of the great literature by leftists has always taken different positions. They've done their own versions of dystopia, their own versions of utopia, and, you know, things that aren't either dystopia or utopia as well. I mean, I think about like, the mixtures like E&M Banks, like the culture novels. Have you, have you read the culture novels? I have not. Okay. Well, I mean, he if you're aware of them, like the whole – and he died uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. But um, the, his culture novels are kind of like – they're like they're communist – there's like space communism. And so he imagines this, this, this far-flung distant civilization um, called, you know, the culture, which has reached its – position through you know class struggle but a long time ago and has no state formation and is kind of it's you know it the forces of production are unleashed because the social relations are you know have been completely changed so it's like exactly like you see communism but the problem is is that what what he makes interesting about it is how it runs into you know people that are um like other other galactic civilizations that don't have those values and so what do you do when you're you know your communism and you're running into these people and so eventually they have like an organization called special circumstances that arises that are just these like ai minds like that are and that hire people and they and they try to prevent um 
they basically try to spread communism, like in a way <laughs> that, like the, you know, like almost in this Cold War way. But it's 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 interesting because the books also deal with times that they get it wrong, where they make these mistakes, and that it causes deep splits. And but it's still the but they're still very clear that there that that way is is like it's communism. It's like this way where there's no there's no more classes. People get to do what they want, and because of that, their technology is also better than anybody else's. Right. Yeah. So it's it's those are in those those are an interesting way right because it it his those books would look at like how utopian the actual thing is but then how all these dystopian other competing galactic powers are and what happens when they clash and can can something that has reached communism can it make mistakes um, I mean there's an it's Banks isn't the first to do that. The Strugatsky brothers, who were writing in the Soviet Union, they wrote a number of books about that, about like space communism, trying to figure out how to intervene. Like, um, they had this one book called Hard to Be a God, which was made into a very long and onerous avant-garde movie recently that's like four hours long. <laughs> but the the original story is just about these uh, these these people that are up the, like they're from all of Earth is communist. They're way they're out in you know some distant place exploring space they encounter a society that's like the worst form of like european feudalism and they're supposed to watch and so there's a debate between them about are are they bound to intervene or should they just watch because communism can't be imperialism but here's all this so it's an interesting they have these debates right about that so um yeah so i feel there's a there's this whole opening that this kind of left-wing literature can do and I think that kind of storytelling is is very very important to any kind of political movement. I mean, obviously, I think that when it comes down to it, action is and can only ever be the way forward, right? I mean, I, I'm I'm a I'm a Marxist Leninist Maoist. I believe in like like a vanguard party that has to organize the masses through the mass line, and you know, and, and in order to like make revolution. Um, but you know, part of that making revolution is kind of creating a, like taking control of the cultural sphere like producing your own revolutionary culture with its own values that stand as alternate values to like the bourgeois values and the very reactionary values that come through in a lot of literature and for the purpose of you know propaganda but in that larger sense of the world because you know all literature is propaganda it's all going to tell you something um and i think Bees afterward in Methods Devour Themselves talks about that, the intentionality that's always in literature. But I think this idea of this large sense of creating our storytelling and control, that not just like in science fiction and fantasy, like in all, all cultural sphere, I think a revolution needs to do that. That's what the bourgeois revolution did when it took power, uh, like when it took power over these centuries, right? It took control of the cultural sphere as well and produced a whole bunch of different kind of like novels and things like that that were way better than the empty ideas of the European aristocracy at that time right now the bourgeois culture is empty right so we should be producing something better and i think absolutely the storytelling and production of art is has to be part of that there's so many directions i want to head in right now but i'm gonna try to <laughs> no let's i think i'll start here in the sense that when we're talking about creating alternatives and creating literature that works on on a revolutionary level. And not all the listeners of this show or, or supporters of Star Trek are necessarily looking for a revolution or looking for a change, but I would argue that if they believe in the values uh, that, that are deep down espoused within Star Trek, then, then they should be looking at alternatives to the way the system is, because whether or not, whatever it is, it, there seems to be a bit more of an egalitarian and, and you know, when we can talk about resources and all that sort of stuff. But getting back to kind of where I want to go here is, do you think the fact that uh, Mark Fisher, a, uh, um, a writer uh, who, who wrote a few years ago from England, uh, a teacher, 
said that it was easier to uh, to see the end of the world than it would be to, to, to see the end of capitalism. And albeit unintentionally, a lot of times he would refer to a sort of a dystopian or negative communist past as an analogy to present affairs in capitalist spheres as a fact that we as leftists need to, you know, make the world better. But he's, he's using, say, like negative, more kind of what we might even consider to be reactionary language that's just sort of been embedded in um, to our vernacular. Do you think that there's an importance then to to create literature that that is careful with its language and careful with the way it presents its its stories so that it doesn't kind of get caught up in this idea that that you know we have to that we would see communism as necessarily a bad thing because of some of the missteps of the past you kind of talked about mistakes as well kind of in that one uh, science fiction story yeah um like definitely that the thing with fisher like i you know i like Fisher's book *Capitalist Realism*, but as as you know, you're you're mentioning, and as I'm sure you know, I point out in um, my first intervention in *Methods to Devour Themselves* that he kind of falls under the exact same phenomena that he's trying to describe in the way that he talks about the former Soviet Union or the Stalin era, right? This is Stalinism, this Stalinism, that, and he uses it in all these wild and contradictory ways that it feels like a kind of Cold War propaganda. So we we have inherited a lot of language that comes through bourgeois ideology, Cold War propaganda. Um, and we can talk about things we've, language we've inherited from like racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, all that kind of stuff, right? That is, the colors our language. So I, I do think that producing kind of new ways of thinking and talking is really essential in writing uh, as best as we can. Um, I feel like it's difficult, right? You can't you can't just suddenly become a language idealist and think that if you just create all these things and you cleanse your language of all these of all words that have like cause so many words have troubled histories that you might not remember. You can only do your best, and some of that language is still there. And if you obsess of thinking that you can change that without actually changing more fundamental things, it it's a wrong way of looking at stuff, right? Like I'd rather some, I, you know, I'd. People are closer to me as comrades who sometimes use the wrong language because they aren't educated in it, but know the values that they should have, right? And commit to defending people that are oppressed, as opposed to like people in academia that do some of the grossest things to other people, but do it with the right language. So there is that. But yeah, I think literature and writing can create new ways of, of seeing, new ways of thinking, new ways of speaking, promote new ways of living. Um, and we can only do this also if we understand, I think, all the past attempts to create these new ways and what went wrong with them and what they did, you know, right. But I feel like on, on top of all of this, I know I've, I spoke about this before and like the communist necessity and I've spoken about it elsewhere. Um, there does seem to be this, this kind of, especially in, you know, North America and, and Europe in the first world, this this feeling of failure that every like this feeling that communism is this this collapse, this horrible catastrophe that has collapsed. Um, a lot of it is read through bad historiographies produced by the Cold War, um, but also there's a sense of, of failure that affects the left. I think Jody Dean and in, in I mean you know, I always have I have my differences with with Jody Dean, right? That you know <laughs> the communist necessity traced out mm-hmm. and I traced out elsewhere. But I think in, in her, the communist horizon, one thing, despite disagreements I had with the way she conceptualized horizon, um, 
one thing I did like that she talked about in there was she talked about kind of the melancholy that affects the left, right? This kind of melancholy that it, it seeps into all the ways we speak about making revolution and the way we have to apologize for ourselves and all this kind of stuff. And I think, yeah, we need to get over that melancholy for sure. So talking about um, your um, living in amber, uh, and you sort of talk about how idealizing the past is like a corruption, right? And 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 that sort of stuff. Do you see our 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 use of the future um, in in a lot of science fiction right now as sort of like a uh, like a mirror or a connector to that corruption of the past? So. Um, the, you know the you know any any story where we would you know talk about first nations metis inuit people in the past if we tried to you know if we tried to to look at that that past and stuff like that they're not going to want to go back there because it's it's a dark place when we talk about these use of krunktep as anonymatopia it's the idea that the past is in fact um a place that could end up corrupting us if we look at it just in a pure sort of sense do you see our, our sort of flipping that to the future? Do you see a corruption taking place if we if we couch our beliefs on a idealized past? Yeah, I know it is. It is. It is makes sense. That's one of the uh, that, because that's precisely what my, my chapter was looking at was these kind of two like almost like what I would you know this 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 historical perspective and the way we think about history, right? And there's this way that we look to the past. Um, where you can idealize the past, you know, like, like the you know the worst forms of like you know fascists who like idealize this you know the past like white settler state i mean it still is a white settler state but like when it's openly white supremacist like in or like all kinds of reactionaries you idealize this like you know this this america that never really existed where everything was good because everyone had family values and all that kind of shit right cultural nationalism does it and then you know and then there's like that forward-looking way that is also can be bad too this this idea that you will just get where we go through technology will develop. We don't have to do anything. Um, we can, we can, we can make excuses for fascism or anything else. Cause eventually socialism is inevitable. That'd be the kind of more revisionist productive forces thing. But then there's also the more reactionary kind of fascist love of futurism too. Right? I mean, as much as fascists love the past, they also had that futurist tech, like this, this, this worship of te- like blind technological forces and the reduction of humans to the machine. So, um, so there's, there's both these kind of negative, backwards and forwards impulses and I, I kind of was explaining but you know a lot of radical literature has also talked about the progressive backwards and forwards impulses so there's ways to look to the past that aren't idealizing it and I talked about uh, uh, Benjamin's uh, thesis on the philosophy of history where he talks about you know the perspective of seeing that that backwards perspective where the working class that looks at you know the catastrophe of his existence and and and, and focuses on the rage of its defeats and and sees all of the problems instead of looking on a future they haven't reached like this kind of grounding in the present and looking at the single catastrophe that has been brought to bear against them as as a motivating force and then I looked at you know Samir Min's um, forward thinking way of talking about kind of like the future the progressive notion that you know looking for looking towards a better future like that you know it's like that that's not the same as saying oh it's going to all work itself out or i'm going to blindly worship you know technological uh, i shouldn't you know this bad i actually use some bad word there that the blind i should apologize for that that was an ableist term but that kind of work like just that that, that worshiping of um 
of, of technological forces that will control, you know, can subordinate your control to them. So like a min has a different way of looking. And so like how do, so I think, yeah, there's, there's bad ways of looking at the future and bad ways of looking at the past. And I think when it comes to literature, we can see those bad ways carried out in different types of fantasy and science fiction. I mean, SFF is such that now all of these things are blurring together with different <laughs> like yeah. genres and not everything that's fantasy is like, like, but if you look at high fantasy or you look at any fantasy that wants to take place in some kind of olden times, um, the kind that like really idealizes kings and, you know, boys quests to become kings or, or like the, you know, the Tolkien narrative, right? yeah, yeah. Th- those, that's something that preserves this desire to return to this, uh, like a feudal past, which is reactionary. And so there's a, there's a way to talk about the past that talks about, you know, the, the mode of production properly in some way that's not boring, but, you know, like looks at the, the past in a way and, and isn't one that just like wallows in some kind of grim, dark, like love of slaughter and misogynist violence either. Um, but, you know, you can have a, a, a appreciation of that kind of literature that's progressive and then the same with the future literature you can have that future literature that just celebrates like space fights and you know boys own adventure stories in space and, and all you know there's so many muscular like conservative science fiction authors <laughs> like <laughs> like you know, the campbell award is named after one yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's that kind of stuff it's the stuff that all those puppies that were trying to game the the hugos wanted to go back to um so you have that and then you have like more kind of interventions of looking at like the future in a way that is you know represents progressive values so if we look back to the 1960s and i'm sort of taking us to to you know when when trek came came forward and you and i were were but twinkles in our parents eyes at that point but we i i really find that you know though couched in a lot of um you know reactionary propaganda that took place at the same time they they have a lot of this sort of excited thing that they that they're trying to do to try to get technology moving forward and if you think about when you know star trek comes forward there's all these amazing technological advances and there were i would say some some relatively progressive things you know they had a, a diverse crew they had different groups of people being encountered i mean it still has its contradictions and its problems but i would say nowadays most of those changes that you know trek for instance um, predicted kind of came to past, though it feels as though that attaining or even surpassing what was expected has turned out to be kind of matter of fact or even boring, kind of like a non-event. Would you say that like the commodification of these new and amazing achievements, or the dispos or or the disposability and transactional nature of our advancements, has sort of rendered them non-issues and kind of non-events, which might also kind of hamper our ability to use SFF in a much more re- ra- radical way? Well, I mean, definitely the commodification has rendered them as what you call non-issues in in the, in the way that they would have been seen in in a science fiction show in the '60s, um, just because like the velocity of commodification is such that you know all these things just build upon each other the people are just inundated with these new technologies and they just get slowly merging into this kind of new way of seeing the world like really quickly through this commodity form um i think i think really what's what's going on is that you know and this goes back to my complaint about a lot of this kind of shows having this productive forces analysis is that the domination of bourgeois social relations is, is just recapturing or delimiting technological advancement all the time. So they're all being controlled by this, by the, by the, 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 the class limit 
that exists under capitalism. And so it's it's really strange, right? Because we, we're we're now. And this is what like our world actually is a dystopia. <laughs> like, it literally is one of the worst dystopias. And I've I talked about this. I, I did talk about this in in that one chapter in there too about how how like the, the reality of the world and what the vast majority of people experience in this world is like more weird and dystopic and horrendous than like the Hunger Games, right? And so it's like so we're living in this world where, where you have this situation where people can communicate globally and instantaneously, right? And this is the, the, my entire the, like our entire project. Project, methods devour themselves comes out of that right it comes out of the fact that you know benjamin is someone that i met on like i mean i i liked her books and everything but that i met i was able to interact with over twitter years ago um and became friends with over twitter and this whole project you know was con- constructed online like i if, you know if technology was like it was when you know i was in early high school um or even early when my beginning my undergrad this pro this you know project wouldn't have been possible so there's that right so we have this kind of so we're living in a world where people can communicate globally and instantaneously but at the same time we have this gap that is increasing between the wealthiest and poorest and it's never been more stark and violent as it is now. So that kind of and, and it's like technology hasn't really we have the means with technology, if we had different social relations, to deal with that gap, to make the world a more humane and social place, but we don't, right? We don't do that. <laughs> and and that is why maybe it doesn't seem like so much of an event. Like it, yeah, there's you know. There'll be people living in poor countries with cell phones because they need them to communicate to family that might be at refugees in diaspora. Um, but at the same time, they're working these like terrible like jobs under different like kind of conditions in the proletariat in the first world, or they're fleeing from like you know war zones or anything like that. So yeah, there's a lot of I mean, there's a lot to say about kind of even the the nightmare that underlies the technology we take for granted so i mean we're communicating over computers or i have a tablet and whatever um and this entire information technology requires silicon right i mean silicon is it's like without silicon (laughs) this stuff wouldn't be functioning as it is but silicon people forget is one of the worst mining industries in the world where like thousands upon thousands of people work in these mines with one of the one of the most brutal extraction processes and then the, the factory process of making silicon useful is even more extractive and productive and people just think oh it's we're now living in this liquidated information economy like, no no it's very material and productive underneath it and that's and it's a brutal brutal mining industry um the silicon industry so there's that as well not to make us feel guilty or anything no. Just, well no it's true and i mean I've, i i bring this up with my students of of silicon but also coltan too i mean whole whole civil wars in the DRC have been funded by different companies who extract that that mineral and then use it and yeah like like silicon coltan is needed for the connective tissue i guess you could say between the 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 electrodes and diodes and in all of the things we're using right now to to communicate with one another so yeah Yeah. this is still very much a almost a neo-colonial kind of look at things we we think about the colonial spheres in the past where all of these nations i like to call them the the big four uh, originally but um you know like england you know if we took the united kingdom for instance way back in the day i mean it was it was 
producing iron ore at an alarming rate, but it was because it was extracting it from India and nobody in India was gaining any profit or any kind of capital off of that. They were just basically slaves. And then people wonder why England did so well with it. So no, I, I fully agree with that. And, you know, when, when we look at environments that are quote unquote post-scarcity, like say the one that, that Star Trek brings forward, I almost wonder sometimes if if there is sort of like a a darker history that we could talk about. You know, they they use a, a mineral they call dilithium to move people around, and they've they've touched on you know, oh, we have dilithium mines here, there. Or, you know, we can't go past certain warp speeds because it's a problem. But they never really like delve deeply into it. It's always kind of packaged into this you know thirty minute episode or forty minute episode, and then it kind of gets forgotten about, or it's sort of like our point has been made, and that's it. Um, mm-hmm. I want to kind of move forward to your last um, envelopes of the future, necessity and freedom. And this is one that I've been really kind of taking a, a harder look at recently, um, just just before our interview here. And it's it's been really fascinating to talk about where you make a distinction between necessity and contingency versus that kind of necessity and destiny that we kind of get ourselves caught in. And, and we've already kind of alluded to that. Um, but first, maybe... Um, if just so you know, our, the listeners are, are are on the same page here. Would you be able to quickly kind of make a distinction between the necessity and contingency versus necessity and uh, destiny that we kind of find ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> just 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 sum it up the real fast. The reason I wrote this whole kind of thing right here. Um, no, I mean, if, I, I guess the, the different would be yeah. Um, seeing it's more like seeing necessity as connected to contingency as seeing necessity connected to destiny i mean there's a way of like so the term necessity that you know but like you know, communism is a necessity and you know can be translated into the way communism is a destiny right it's inevitable because it's necessary for humans so it must inevitably happen but that's a very that's a very destined or magical way to think about necessity um the way that like you know you think about necessity as materialist is that in order to do things, we have to necessarily do other things, right? And there's a contingency in it, as in that if we don't do them, we won't get that, right? Or there may be a contingency, as in these necessities are contingently, they hang on, they're connected to other moments of encountered necessity. Um, but, you know, the, the argument that I make about, you know, kind of necessity being connected to freedom very specifically. I mean, this is something that comes out of the Hegelian tradition, but one that I point out that Marx takes a more materialist line, so I I make a distinction between the Hegelian notion of necessity. Um, But it's, it's this idea, you know, where we look at the fact that we just look at like kind of materialist things like my freedom to thrive as a human being. One of the necessities I have to accomplish is I have to eat, you know, otherwise I'll die and I won't thrive. So that's a very brute materialist one to drink water. Um, but then we start thinking about other things like what is it, what are, what, what is it, what is necessary for us to live fully humane lives? Then we start talking about seeing our freedom realized in the necessity of like making socialism, which is, you know, a point Engels makes. And I, I quoted him on that. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what you're trying to get at here with the, I'm just, you know, I was pointing out that there's a long standing kind of tradition of, of kind of postmodern thinkers being like, oh, this necessity stuff is just about destiny and inevitableism. And, you know, there were, uh, Marxist Leninists in the past, um, that would put it in that language. Often, often that language was 
meant to be propagandistic, right? Mm. So we have to separate it, like, because they were, there'd always be other stuff that was written that would be, oh, no, but humans have to make history, right? It's not like, ta-da, it's ne- communism is necessarily going to happen. But, you know, necessity kind of hangs on these moments of, of contingent encounters in the world. Yeah, and basically what what I was trying to get uh, onto that was was the idea that in a lot of cases I see a lot of people who you know align them align themselves to different different stories and different arcs that take place within speculative fiction, sci fi, and fantasy, and that's about as far as it gets. And then you know, I, I mean, I know a lot of fellow Star Trek fans who are just like, you know, when they often joke, you know, oh, this is the day that we make first contact with the Vulcans. Ha ha ha. You know, only a hundred years to go, folks, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of where I'm getting is I almost worry sometimes that people within, you know, the fandom that I have, that I have my, you know, my biggest stake in look towards a better future as if it's just going to happen one day and it won't. What what would you say to, to people who, who do that, I guess, is maybe, maybe a better way of putting it? Well, I mean... It's hard to say. I think people don't necessarily do that because they literally believe, um, like, it's they're not committed. I don't think everyone's committed to some view of, like, destiny. Maybe some people are, but I don't think they're, like, consciously committed to it. I think a lot of people, uh, that's that's actually just part of, like, kind of bourgeois ideology, this sense that the world is just going to get better, but also this feeling that it's beyond you. Um, and that we don't have anything to do with changing or transforming the world that like, you know, the social forces exist so above us and are so outside of us. And, you know, it's, it's, we'll go back. It's, it's the end of history, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing is, nothing is going to change. So if it does get better, it's out of our hands. We can't do anything about it. And uh, there's a reason people feel like this. I mean, we, we do, we are meant to feel powerless when we're like alienated from each other and we don't have the kind of mass movement that would have existed in the past. Um, point is to build those so people don't feel that and change and show that, you know, the world can be changed and remind people that the world has been changed. And the only reason it's like this is because people have made it this way. But I mean, this desire for things to change on their own without our intervention. Um, and I, yeah, I just think it's really just promoted by the, the pessimism and the nihilism that comes out of, out of one strain of capitalist ideology. And it's that, it's a very kind of, you know, strain now where we kind of feel like we're living in this death world. Um, and, and there's no way we can make it better. And that recent report, uh, about the, you know, climate change that came out from the UN is, you know, one way to react to that is like, we've got no chance. We're like royally fucked. So hopefully space aliens will come and save us, right? Uh, or eat less meat, is, right? That, that, that's yeah, the other one yeah. is your individual action will do something. No, no government intervention will save us. You, you just, you know, sorting your cans will save everything. I, oh, yeah. Yeah the, love- yeah, the deployment on individual responsibility. When it comes down to that, people definitely feel powerless, right? Like, what are they supposed to do? And what are definitely the poorest people supposed to do who, you know, can't go to buy the more, like, the, the food that is, you know, less harmful to the environment or whatever, you know, who live in areas that don't have access, you know, or have to drive in a place that doesn't, you know, people that have to drive to their jobs because there's no bus and they have, like, a family car they share to drive to their jobs over and over. Like, I, you know, it's like... 
there's all these realities that that is not going to, that people are going to feel powerless about. So thinking of that kind of, you know, if I can just, you know, get this done, you know, we talked about, you know, poor people, less advantaged people basically having to do whatever they can to make ends meet. Oftentimes I still sort of get this sense of, of a more bright future. I agree with you in the sense that I don't think, fellow Star Trek fans are are actually thinking Vulcans are floating around out there waiting to make first contact. Of course, they don't exist. But um, other alien races probably do somewhere, but that's another conversation for another podcast. On that train of thought towards we kind of find ourselves no longer goal-setting, but kind of just more like managing. You know, there's not really an end in sight to any of this. It's just day-to-day... I need to get to this, you know, location to get the job, the money and all this sort of stuff. I feel like that more beautiful future might be getting further away from us, but we still kind of yearn for that better time. And it kind of reminds me of Spock and Data and their search throughout their, you know, their respective character arcs where Spock is trying very much to understand his Vulcan side and, and you know, kind of match that to his human side and then data is like pinocchio just trying to be a real person when you finally get to the end of it you kind of realize that the day-to-day is is maybe the more important thing to do and it's about the journey and maybe this kind of comes down to what i understand of marxist leninism maoism is the idea that when the revolution is quote-unquote over actually that's when the revolution really begins and class struggle will still exist even when we've sort of met these solutions do you see any any value in say spock or data's story that we could use as allegory to people who are looking to change things and change the world who kind of put a better date ahead of themselves and maybe forget about their day-to-day life now and the things they can do. Yeah, I mean, focusing on the moment, but I mean, if you're focusing on the moment, I mean, it's, I don't, this idea that the journey is better than the end goal is not something I really buy into because I, I want the end goal. I want communism. Yeah. <laughs> I, want a, I want a classless society so people don't have to suffer and that, you know, this, this ludicrousness of like capitalist waste is like over with and that these, these the scum, who, the parasites that basically control everything are like done away with. Like I want that world, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, in order to get that world, if it's all you do is just focus on that, then um, you do have to focus on the day to day and figuring out in the moment how you organize now for that. What do you do now for that? And, and that and that kind of thing. I'm not sure exactly what because I'm I'm trying to think of like how because that's not how like I'm trying to yeah I don't I'm not sure how we connect this to Spock and Data specifically. Yeah. I do I I do find though with Spock and Data something just like more philosophically interesting. Um, but it's not what you're looking at for. <laughs> no, look, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I just, I just more like I feel that like the shift from uh, the original Star Trek to Next Generation represents kind of a shift in the way that like the values of reason are seen, right? So you have Spock, who you know everyone also thinks he's you know different, but it's not like Spock is ever trying to be like I want emotions, I want to be like a, a human. Like he's he is he's this you know he's like some kind of like pure Kantian subject that <laughs> that is. That it, for some bizarre reason doesn't it suppresses his emotions so he can like be better at reason, um, which which is a very very specific notion, a very male based notion of reason, right? It's it's one that has been criticized by like feminist logicians and epistemologists uh, more recently, especially like Lorraine Code was one person that talk, talks about that kind of that kind of reason, that depiction of reason as being outside of care. Um, 
And, uh, and so he represents that, but it's like with data, you get the shift almost of an understanding that that was kind of a weird androcentric way of seeing things because data is like, there's something missing. Like the Spock, it's not missing. Like data, is some, there's something missing. And like, I need to have some kind of like, you know, you know, balance, like, the, like he just desire to be human. Um, Cause he's, he's almost, like the, oh. yeah, there's, there's almost something uncanny about, about data in the sense that he's, he's almost trying to be more human than human. Yeah, yeah. And with Spock, you never have that. Although they do try to, like, when they do the movie version of Spock, they do try to, like, add that to his character as well. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how it works, but it's almost like they've added stuff that worked for Data and with stuff with Spock. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that does, that has nothing to do with what you said originally. But, um, I mean, that's that's kind of the way that I see them. So I'm not, I'm not sure about their story about like what it has to do with communism really maybe i don't know just maybe better way to understand the logics that we function under because i think the spock way is not you know that androcentric way of seeing things is you know a way that we have like reason is important but it's like this very abstract unembodied reason that you know as i said it's like kant right yeah there was something i think you this might have been you wrote it uh, you talked about how logic isn't the like the end of reason is that ringing a bell at all i'm trying to remember i've been reading a lot of things and i'm not sure where i'm getting them all from but uh, i don't know i they write so much so many times i'd have to hear the whole context of what yeah, i said i think right. that like you know like the end of reason isn't just like knowing like logical like logical algorithms i mean people study logic their whole life right yeah. i mean that's that's not my area i have i know a bit of logic so i had to study to get my phd in philosophy but i'm not a logician but yeah. reasoning is much more than that yeah. arguments and thinking is much more than just writing syllogisms yeah i guess like to to, to kind of maybe couch it a little bit better in, in what i was where i was going with it is you know i'm a leftist who is trying to make his way in in the northern reaches of of northern alberta and i'm alone but um it's that kind of you know you're trying to you're trying to work towards a philosophy that is being built that is still alive and moving and and dynamic and maybe you know here i am kind of in the middle of nowhere feeling kind of like spock trying to come to terms with a internal heritage that i don't necessarily fully understand i guess would be a uh, way of putting it yeah yeah okay yeah i see that and i feel like a lot of people feel that maybe if because when they're spread out and alienated from other movements and things and it's harder when you're like not with people to like stay committed right it's or because a lot of the commitment for and the thinking through these things comes from the practice like the mass work you do with other people yeah so no definitely yeah well i think we can uh, start winding up the uh the the episode or the interview here for again thank you for coming on first question i have is is do you have any questions for me uh, none that I can think of. I would have <laughs> I was thinking I, uh, I should have thought about that ahead of time, but That's unfortunately, at this moment, at this moment in the conversation, now I'm like, I got to think of something, and then, don't have then my mind goes blank. Right? <laughs> I can always, I can always cut that out too, and and, and stuff. I don't want to put you on the spot, but the next one, I am totally putting you on the spot, and this is a question we ask everyone who comes on the show. If uh, and you can pick which Enterprise, but if the Enterprise actually existed and you were suddenly plopped in it, where would we find you? Where would you find me in the Enterprise? The holodeck. <laughs> Ooh, what would you What would you be doing on the holodeck? I don't know. Finding a way to interact with all these historical figures I never met in real life. Who Who would be a number one historical figure? 
oh man, I mean, number there's no number one, but I mean, obviously, you, you know, the, the, I, if I don't say Marx or Engels, I you know I lose my credentials right now as a yeah. Marxist philosopher. <laughs> Lenin, Mao, those you know those people. <laughs> yeah, definitely wonderful. Well, Josh, thank you so much for for coming on the show. It. Uh, this is this has been a a very exciting thing for me to get a chance to to talk to you, someone who I deeply respect. Um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to ask you some questions? There are some very, um, I guess you could say, um, left leaning, sympathetic folk who want to learn a little bit more about leftist philosophy, communist philosophy. Uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, look into some of your other writings and stuff. How can we find you? Well, I mean, there's if you go to my blog, which is MLM Mayhem, on the sidebar pop-up or some. It used to be there. I'm not sure now if it is. It should still be there. There's a way to contact me, right? You can just click it and will send me an email through the through the blog spot um, algorithm. But, you know, I because I, I just don't want to give up my, my email directly online. Agreed. But uh, it's it, also, too, it's like, you know, I do... I do like when people ask me questions and I like engaging with people, but at the same time, it's, 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 uh, it can become like, like, I don't want people to answer me and I don't answer them. They get mad because I get lots of email from my students and everything. And it's just, it's, it's really exhausting sometimes to answer questions over email. Although I do like to do it when I do have time. So if people did want to shoot me off questions about something, I couldn't guarantee an immediate response. <laughs> and uh, also don't inundate me because I get inundated by my students all the time yeah. as part of my job. And so it becomes really hard to focus. Fair enough. And you're, are you on the Twitter sphere as well? Oh yes, yes I am on the Twitter sphere, um, and that's it's also under MLM Mayhem is my Twitter handle there. But you can just probably type in J Mufawad Paul and find me too. Fantastic. Well, once again, uh, Josh, thank you so much for coming on Politrex, and uh, we we look forward to seeing what uh, what other projects you come up with in the future. So live long and prosper, sir. Yep, thanks for having me. Cool. Uh, just before we go, Josh, um, just thought I'd kind of let. You-